Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Prospero's Roaring War, the rough magic of Shakespeare's Tempest. We open with the first movement of Beethoven's Tempest, or Piano Sonata No. 17 in D minor, composed in 1802, performed here by Glenn Gould on March 19, 1967, on the television program Music for a Sunday Afternoon. We read ourselves into Shakespeare's Tempest. Not only can we chart our sociological course by surveying productions of the play, but we, each of us, expose our notions of gender, politics, and race when we open our mouths in interpretation. I certainly do. The play upends or reverses our understanding time and again. A shipwreck that is not a shipwreck restores order to a broken ship of state. But what is revealed by the main action of the play is the rot at the core, it is constructed to forever founder. This play gives us the great sorcerer Prospero, who, through the power of his magic or art, or a burgeoning science, achieves one such restoration of political and worldly power. But it's the nature of that art that must be called into question and challenged. That's our task today. Our guest for the hour is Helen Scott, associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Vermont, and author of Shakespeare's Tempest and Capitalism, The Storm of History, published by Routledge. Scott's book traces the way productions of the play reveal the politics of each successive age, how to some Prospero is the benevolent mage of the liberal arts, and yet to others he's a colonizer and slave master, a philosopher king and harbinger of scientific progress who is revealed to be nothing but the thief of natural resources and labor power. Through this short play we can interrogate so many ideas, the nature and order of worldly power and those who dominate and those who are oppressed, enslavement, dispossession, torture, the right of conquest and imperial projects, the application of science and the use of bodies as productive labor and reproductive labor. And finally, we're confronted with all of life's impermanence and how it drives humanity toward meaning. And now, Prospero's Roaring War with Helen Scott on Interchange on WFHB. Fathom five, my father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him but doth fade. That doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Well, thanks for doing this. Well, thank you for getting in touch. I'm always happy to talk about my book. Usually people are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so first, uh, thanks for joining me on Interchange, Helen Scott. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so your new book is called Shakespeare's Tempest and Capitalism, The Storm of History. Can you give us uh, sort of just a general plan of the work to begin with? Well, it stems from a lifelong interest in the play. I was always trying to figure out why I had this connection with a play that 
I don't really like. <laughs> so in terms of the plot, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a very conservative play, uh, and I think it's quite unpleasant and cruel. And yet, I f- I found that I was very fascinated by it. And so, what I ended up figuring out is that the play captures something about the moment of its production, which was a particular moment in the transition from feudalism to capitalism. But it captured both the horrors of capitalism and also traces of resistance. Let's start with a little background on The Tempest. It's the last play by Shakespeare that's fully his own work, and this is 1611. Yeah, that's right. 1611. And so you already mentioned the transition from feudalism to capitalism, perhaps, and uh, sort of the dying of the old order and uh, morphing or transforming into something new. Um, so what's, what's 1611? What's, what is going on? How is this happening in, a, uh, I guess, a more historical way versus the, the action in this play? Right. It's an early moment in mercantile capitalism and an early moment in... English colonial exploration. Of course, the Spanish and Portuguese colonial empires were well established by now, but England was kind of jumping in. And there was the beginning of colonization of the Americas and a kind of ongoing, larger economic transformation of the society from a society based on land and inheritance and Uh, a kind of static sense of people being born and dying in the same place to a society based on money in which people could change status and also things were changing very rapidly. Under feudal society, there was an expectation of continuity for generations. That was no longer the case. And so that kind of sense of a mercurial, ever-changing moment that was frightening and also exhilarating i think marks that period there's been dispossession at this point right there's uh, there's yeah. um um the loss of the commons uh, enclosures have happened and people are uh, also heading into cities right so london is growing or has grown um or will be growing quite exponentially at this period devastating dispossessions um in in england Basically, the peasantry was being systematically kicked off the land that it had lived on um, and criminalized. You know, there was, it was a double whammy. It was like, you can no longer live on that land because it's, it's, going, it's being taken away from you by you know, big landowners. Um, and then you won't have any means of living, but you will be criminalized for being homeless. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was a very brutal period. And, and that was in England. And of course, on the global scale, there was the dispossession of indigenous populations um, that was ongoing. And the beginnings of enslavement, not quite yet the, the chattel slavery that would be central to the triangular slave trade, but the conditions that enabled that were in place. Um, and there was unfree labor in, in the new world already. So what about the theater itself? I see the theater as being an encapsulation, you know, an embodiment of what's going on in the bigger society, because as an institution, it's both drawing on the old. You know, there's a longstanding tradition of medieval theater, the traveling theater troops, But at the same time, in in London, the new urban center of the transition, these brand new 
purpose-built theatres were being built and they were commercial. So this is when the box office was invented. Mm. And that was something that was dizzyingly new. So you had these companies, new companies, and they were joint stock companies. They were capitalist companies and they were designed to make a profit. And they did so by charging money for people to come and be entertained. So it's the combination of old and new, which really mirrors the broader pattern in the society. Well, it uh, it gives a sense of a kind of self-referentiality throughout, right? There's always this idea of always sort of commenting on the work itself, on the the act of playing, uh, on writing plays, of being in plays, of of being uh, performative. It seems that the plays do this as well. Yeah, I, I agreed. And I think that that's true throughout Shakespeare's oeuvre mm-hmm. and also early modern theatre more broadly. But I think it's especially so for The Tempest. It's the most metatheatrical. In many ways, Shakespeare can be read as a Prospero or Prospero can be read as a, as a Shakespeare. You know, Prospero is, is a at least a director. Um, you know, he's putting on a show. He literally puts on a show in the play, in, in the, the Trovo mask. Uh, and then there are all of these references to theatre, you know, this, the great globe and all that it inhabits shall dissolve. It literally it does in some, in some ways. It, it, the theatre goes away at some point, like 1640 or so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the theatre itself is, is only a few decades away from dissolving. Mm-hmm. But also the society is in a process of dissolving. And that's why I think it, it, it taps into that sense of impermanence and loss, which is embodied in Prospero's great soliloquies in particular. But also it's embedded in a lot of the imagery and figurative language throughout the play. Hmm. So you get this kind of double double tension between the plot and the figurative language. Now, this is, uh, is this an original play in the sense that it has no uh, source um, uh, like another play or a particular history? The, obviously, it has sources in the sense that Shakespeare yeah. draws on things. But this is one of the, uh, I guess, original plays of Shakespeare? Yeah, that's right. It's quite unusual in that way. It does draw on both classical and contemporary sources for its material. But there is no earlier play that Shakespeare was adapting so let's, uh, if we can, let's give a, a summary of the action, perhaps. Give a little summary of what, what the play's about. It begins with a violent storm and a shipwreck, which becomes hugely significant. And a moment of, of class conflict on the ship, because you have a scene where there's the noble crew who are returning from Tunis from a royal wedding to go back to Milan to the Italian city-states and the noble passengers are in this conflict with the crew who are trying to steer the ship through the storm and there's this unusually violent and nasty exchange with the the nobles saying you know you're you're rude and crude and you're destined for the gallows because you're impertinent and you don't respect royalty you don't respect your king Now keep below. Where's the master, her son? Do you not hear it? You mar our labor. Keep your cabins. You do assist the storm. Hey, good. Be patient. When the sea is 
Hence! What cares these warers for the name of king? To cabin! Silence! Trouble us not! Good. Yet remember who thou hast aboard. None that I more love than myself. You are a counsellor. If you can command these elements to silence and work a peace of the present, we will not hand a rope more. Use your authority! If you cannot, give thanks you have lived so long and make yourself ready in your cabin for the mischance of the hour, if it so happens. Cheerly, good hearts! Out of our way, I say! The bosun is saying, look, we're just trying to do our job. Um, let us get on with it. And and also um, there's this line where the bosun says, what care these roarers for the name of king? So that right at the beginning, there's this sense of the natural world not necessarily respecting social hierarchies. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Prospero's Roaring War, and our guest is Helen Scott, author of Shakespeare's Tempest and Capitalism, in which she explores the ramifications and figurative potential of the Tempest for global social and ecological crises today. Uh, So that's the beginning, and then from there on, you are introduced to Prospero, uh, the former Duke of Milan and his daughter Miranda, who's a teenager, um, and they have been on the island for 12 years ever since Prospero was exiled from Milan. His version of events is that he was a beloved and great ruler, but he was wrapped up in studies, which seem to be studies of the occult, and um, gave power to his brother. Antonio, who then took advantage and betrayed him and ultimately usurped him. Um, And then he went into exile. That's his narrative. What you get in the course of the play is a series of counter-narratives. And I think a lot of the kind of fate of the Tempest rests upon whose version of events you listen to. The typical thing is to listen to Prospero's play, you know, for it to be Prospero's play. Right. And Shakespeare's play. Ergo, yeah. If if we take Prospero as as a stand-in for Shakespeare, which, by the way, nobody did until really the 18th century. Mm -hmm. But subsequently, it becomes very commonplace. But then we meet... Prospero's servant and slave, Ariel and Caliban, both of them are under the power of Prospero in various ways. Caliban is, you know, the he's described as a deformed slave, and Ariel is an airy spirit. Um, again, Prospero claims to have freed Ariel from the former inhabitant of the island, the witch, Sycorax. But he has also re-enslaved Ariel. And this sets in motion what I think is one of the most powerful aspects of the play, which is a series of mirroring. You have apparent opposites who end up being, in fact, mirror images in many ways. Um, And the biggest parallel is between Prospero, the good magician, if you like, the white mage, um, and Sycorax, the, the bad witch, um, the African sorceress. So they are figured as opposites, but through the language, they're actually echoes of each other. Mm. To cut a long story short, all of the inhabitants of the ship, um, it turns out, didn't actually die in the wreck. They've been scattered around the island. And the rest of the play takes us to the different groups of characters, and they are the royal party who are separated from each other, 
um, particularly the king, Alonso, and his son, Ferdinand, who both think each other is dead. Um, and then the servants, Trinculo and Stefano, who, who get hold of some alcohol from the ship wreck and are drunk throughout the play. Prospero initially wants revenge, right? He wants revenge on his brother and the king who ousted him. And he gets that. He gets his revenge. Part of how he gets that is he arranges a marriage between his daughter, Miranda, and Ferdinand, the daughter of the king. And that's securing his future interests in Naples, because it's the king of Naples. And by the end, he's sewn everything together. He's got his dukedom back. He's married his daughter to the prince. And at that point, he says, I'm going to renounce my magic and forgive everybody and we can all go home. He's not a friendly, happy guy. Prospero throughout, I suppose, depending on how you play him, I guess. Tonight thou shalt have cramps, side stitches that shall pen thy breath up. Urchins shall for that bastard of might that they may work, all exercise on thee. Thou shalt be pinched as sick as honeycomb, each pinch more stinging than bees that made them. I do want to, I think, back up a bit just to, to talk about Sycorax first, simply because she's not in the play. She's a character named and described only by other characters, um, Caliban and Prospero um, in particular, and she's the blue-eyed witch, right. which is fascinating in itself. So Sycorax is an like a very important presence and as as we sort of will go through and think about how she has been displaced in fact she herself was um displaced onto the island so again the island is not sycorax's island either um right. so she is an as you said i think algiers in the play she's a, an african uh, quote-unquote witch the action proper i guess starts with sycorax or the history of the play or the history of the island yeah I mean, that whole question of whose island, you know, who does the island belong with? I mean, it is, it is all about land and ownership. Right, right. And you're right. Certainly the dramatis personae as we have inherited it says that the action takes place on an uninhabited island. That's clearly not the case. Certainly Sycorax and Caliban were on the island before Prospero. So it wasn't an uninhabited island. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caliban actually claims his right to the island. This, this island's is mine by Sycorax, my, my mother, which thou takest from me. Which is interesting because he's claiming ownership through the maternal line. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously Shakespearean England, deeply patriarchal. Um, inheritance usually went through the male line. Mm-hmm. Um, but And it has to be said that um, Caliban knows the island better than anybody else and he has i think the most beautiful speeches in the play um, and those speeches describe the island in ways that are stunning you know and emotionally powerful and and beautiful when thou camest first thou strokest me and made much of me which give me water with berries in it and teach me how to name the bigger light and how the less that burn by day and night. And then I loved thee and showed thee all the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place and fertile. Cursed be I that did so. All the charms of Sycorax, toads, 
Beetle's bats light on you. For I am all the subjects that you have, which first was mine own king, and here you sty me in this hard rock, whilst you do keep from me the rest of the island. So that implies somewhat of a counter-narrative to Prospero, whose claim to the island is purely through force. He's a late arrival and um, is used to being Duke and takes control. But does he know and understand the island? No, he gets all of that from Caliban and Ariel. Nor does he seem to be interested in the island whatsoever. Again, the play, because it starts with this shipwreck, is uh, the island becomes all about taking back the dukedom or taking back royal power, getting back to where he was before. It's, it's the island exists as, as the shipwreck does, as a function for the action of Prospero's magic or art. Yeah, right. It's purely instrumental. Mm-hmm. It's time for a break. This is the Miles Davis Quintet from 1967 with The Sorcerer. More on The Tempest and Capitalism's Storm of History with author Helen Scott when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today is Prospero's Roaring War with guest Helen Scott, author of Shakespeare's Tempest and Capitalism, a book that situates the Tempest within Marxist analyses of the primitive accumulation of capital, which she suggests help explain the play's continued and particular resonance. It's fascinating within the play itself to imagine, again, that sort of meta-fictional idea that there is no storm, um, that it's Prospero's creation in the first place. So uh, the roars themselves are being created by one of those kings. In one way, you can read it, again, at the level of plot. It is a a classic play of feudal restoration. And in that economy of representation... Antonio and Sebastian, Prospero's brother and the king's brother, they're younger brothers. Under the feudal order, that means they don't inherit. At this moment in time in history, there is a kind of challenge to that notion of primogeniture, right, that only the oldest son inherits. And there's this kind of new economy where there's the possibility of the, quote, self-made man. Mm -hmm. 
in many ways, Antonio and Sebastian are demonized as being the ambitious, self-made men. They want to disrupt the feudal order. You know, they're willing to kill Alonso so that they can inherit. Again, it's very dangerous to be too allegorical, but it's hard not to think about Sebastian Antonio as the kind of proto-capitalist. Um, and Prospero then is the symbol of the old feudal order. Mm-hmm. It's still not that long since James took over as as king. And in the periods you know, leading up to Elizabeth's death, the theatres were pretty much banned from any discussion of succession hmm. because it was such an unfixed question. So there's something very dangerous about having such explicit discussions. You know, it is a play about people challenging who is the king, who is mm-hmm. who's in control. It does account for why it's so fascinating and why it's so pliable. It's the play that has led to more critical debates and radically different appropriations. Um, and I think that we can trace that back to this very unsettled, contradictory, paradoxical, self-referential oppositions, including centrally the opposition between nature and art. Prospero is repeatedly associated with art, my art, and he he refers to his magic as my art. Mm -hmm. The elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes, and groves, and ye that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune and do fly him when he comes back. You demi-puppets that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make whereof the you not bites. And you whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew by whose aid weak masters though ye be I have bedimmed the noontide sun called forth the mutinous winds and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war to the dread rattling thunder have I given fire and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own boat the strong base promontory have I made shake and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, hoped and let them fall by my so potent art. To point to the idea of Prospero and his art or magic being a part of, um, I guess, managing sort of, you know, nature or being able to manipulate nature to to create things and the idea of, uh, you know, capitalism beginning to, uh, as you say, dispossess as Prospero dispossesses yeah. uh, the inhabitants of the island again to make his magic. I don't know what he could do without Ariel, but it's his books, right? His liberal arts, his understanding of the way the world works that gives him his power. And it's that dispossession that starts things. So that's kind of the, the unfair advantage of capitalism is it takes uh, and gets wealth initially and then puts that wealth to use through a knowledge of, of nature and how to manipulate it. And this is all how it's beginning. Right, exactly. And that I think that way of seeing the play as a play that is centrally about that act of initial 
primitive accumulation, Prospero takes the land and uses the labor of Caliban and Ariel. Um, that takes on particular significance in the 21st century during this new phase of dispossession. Mm. So certainly in the beginning of the 21st century, we see a move towards new interrogations of and analyses of this period and what is called in Marxist terms, the primitive accumulation of capital. Mm-hmm. And David Harvey, you know, introduced a very um, influential concept of a new um, accumulation by dispossession that capitalism was experiencing going into the 21st century, which involved new rounds of dispossessions globally of indigenous people um, and the complete spread of capitalism throughout the world so that there's you really can't point to any part of the world that is not dominated by capitalism and integrated into a world system. I'm not making an argument, I'm not making some sort of straight argument about an allegory or certainly not making any argument that, that you know, Shakespeare was offering a critique of early capitalism. That That's just not feasible. But I think it's possible to say that the way that the Tempest captures these tumultuous upheavals, including dispossessions, global dispossessions, the way that that's kind of embedded in the text takes on particular meaning in the late phase of capitalism. And today, you know, with capitalism facing its old age and the threat of planetary dissolution, right, the the, the idea that our, our entire society, our entire world is in peril is so acute Um, that it allows us to find in the Tempest echoes of those concerns. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get stuck with Prospero and and Ariel and Caliban as these kind of elements of um, the way in which uh, the capitalist world has performed. Ariel is not a creature. It's a mode of of manipulating natural resources. Caliban is not uh, not anything but representative of slave labor. You know, so we have these two things in particular that begin this play in some sense or the idea of, uh, you know, the the crash of the the current ship of state to the this, you know, ridiculously um, vital, fecund, disruptive, disorienting period, which leads to uh, the Industrial Revolution and slavery. So, so these things, these two things exist in Ariel and Caliban. It's hard for me not to see them that way because of where we are, I suppose. Um, And that's, again, a key issue in your book. And I I know we need to walk through a few of these things because it's the fascinating thing about it is to watch how people had seen, read, uh, talked about, interpreted the play uh, through history in in the way I'm doing now, in in different ways, but as I'm doing now. It's not just projection. There is something deeper going on. And increasingly, the way that I see it is that, in fact, to take those elements out of the play takes a tremendous effort because the play is about enslavement. You know, it Mm -hmm. it is about dispossession. It is about usurpation. Um, It is about torturing witches. Um, It's about incarceration. So... Those things certainly take on different meaning over time. To ignore them is to um, 
change the play radically. Mm. There, there's a sense in which there's a normative reading of the play, which is that makes it a play about forgiveness and redemption, and it's a fairy tale and it's a comedy. Um, but that, in fact, that is as much of a radical reworking of the play, more so, I would argue, than any reading that um, sees it through the lens of enslavement and mm. colonialism. I think that's I think that's right on. I think it's an interesting uh, confusion of of actually how you would read the play versus how you would um, force the play into, as you say, normative um, understanding. And again, one that serves the reconciliation of power centers. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Prospero's Roaring War, and our guest is Helen Scott author of Shakespeare's Tempest and Capitalism, in which she explores the ramifications and figurative potential of the Tempest for global social and ecological crises today. You walk through ways in which the plays can be characterized as integrative, uh, disintegrative, and liberatory. And these are, uh, again, I guess integrative would be more this normative perspective. Disintegrative kind of happens in when the world is in weird upheavals, uh, not weird, but, you know, uh, sort of like anti-colonial periods where people say the play does carry all this tension and disruption and all these things that are negative about how capital and power centers have forced the rest of us into these roles. Uh, and then a liberatory reading, which says we can even go for, we can go beyond just saying how terrible the world is. We can give it another perspective. So do you want to talk about those particular ways of reading the play and maybe suggest uh, a version of that? Yes. Um, it's very, very common to go and see a performance and it's mostly comic. You know, it's, it's magical. Um, it's one of the words that, that I use is spangled, um, harmonious with an emphasis on Prospero as a kind of twinkly, grandfatherly, you know, good wizard. That is very normative and, and this sort of discordant, violent, conflicted elements of the play are damped down um, or erased altogether. And what I argue is that there's a kind of spectrum of actively rewriting the play to make it that, all the way through to how you emphasize something in performance. Um, In terms of the most extreme form of the integrative rewrite of of the Tempest, I think you have to go back to The Enchanted Island, which was the 17th century play by John Dryden and William Davenant that literally rewrote the play. It's famously left a third of the original text, basically got rid of the subplot, added some characters and emphasized the romance. So it becomes a lot more the comic restoration play And it's a real act of violence to do that to the original play. But the thing that's fascinating is that their version was the dominant version for the next 150 years. Yeah, that's one of the things that kind of hurts my head sometimes (laughs) is to imagine people reading, thinking with that play in mind or with like, and it's, it's like not just this play, but it's the way in which, you know, people read and history happens and it's translated and people 
carry those ideas and thoughts forward. It's always amazing to me when the when it can be undone in some sense. You know, when it does come to another mode or another uh, response to it uh, in perhaps rom- in the Romantic era, right. you know, where it's rediscovered. I sit on the side of history and like clap my hands, <laughs> you know, yay, yay for the Romantics. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I do the same thing. It's it's remarkable. The Enchanted Island, it better fit the restoration mm. because, you know, that kind of period of radical questioning of all aspects of, the, of society that ended in the Glorious Revolution, the English Civil Wars, um, that had been shut down after the restoration. We had a monarchy again and, you know, capitalism was now on the ascendant but the new capitalist ruling class had no interest in continuing the radical questioning of all aspects of society. That was the last thing they wanted. So that, in terms of theatre, led to the theatre becoming a lot less dangerous, a lot less radical, and a lot less diverse in terms of audiences. So, you know, in Shakespeare's time, we didn't really talk about that, but one of the aspects of these radically new theatres was that they were open to everybody mm-hmm. working class people had access to these plays and they were also performed in the court so it was literally the whole cross section of society who were um, exposed to Shakespeare's play which is why they are so polyvocal because they are literally speaking to very diverse audiences mm-hmm. the next phase of bourgeois revolutions which is you know the romantic period the romantics across the board looked to the tempest Shakespeare's tempest and see see it in a very different way. It's still not the same tempest that we know, but it's a tempest that's absolutely associated with the power of imagination and the revolutionary power of, of imagination. We are now focusing on all that solid melts into air um, and sea change and all of the things that lead us to pay attention to violent transformation. Our revels now are ended. These our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air. Thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits shall dissolve. Unlike this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. You know, when we talk about things melting in the air, obviously this is uh, the famous uh, Marx uh, quote from the Communist Manifesto, right? All that solid melts in the air. So is this a a conscious echo of this play then? Yeah, I argue so. I mean, Marx quoted Shakespeare liberally, you know, he was was very literate. And and then it it gets imported into Marshall Berman's landmark book about modernity, um, all that solid melts into air. Mm. The Tempest then from the Romantics on gets associated with this notion of 
social impermanence, you know, that, that those references are references to the uncertainty and impermanence that comes with social upheaval. Marx inherits that. Berman inherits it. Uh, and also the image of the sorcerer whose powers have slipped his control, which Marx also uses in the Communist Manifesto. So that both of those things are at the heart of the Tempest, and they increasingly become associated with it over time. Well, there's even, uh, you know, the Disney cartoon with uh, Mickey losing control of his, his brooms. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's time for another break. This is The Wizard by Albert Eiler. Stay with us for more with Helen Scott on The Tempest and Capitalism when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Prospero's Roaring War, and our guest via Skype is author and professor Helen Scott. Her book on Shakespeare's Tempest pays particular attention to moments of social crisis, where she unearths a radical political tradition in productions and readings of the play. In this segment, we explore something of the dystopic versions centering on decolonization and the violent appropriation of bodies. After the romantic disintegrative, where do we find the liberatory? Uh, is this is this in the anti-colonial movements uh, or the feminist movements where they can reframe it? Right. Um, I mean, I think that the the high point of the emancipatory version of the play is a product of the '60s and '70s and the mass anti-colonial, anti-racist movements that spread across the globe, and that's the moment. There's a decade, really, where a stunning number of African and Caribbean artists take up the play and rewrite it uh, with Caliban, Ariel and Caliban, um, as the heroes and Prospero as the colonizer. And um, they do have to rewrite the play, but there is enough material in the play to make that rewrite possible. I think that M.A. Césaire's 1969 version of the play um, in Tempest is the epitome of the liberatory version. There's actually, there's a part in your book and I wanted to bring it up because, uh, and I think I wrote it to you in an email because we just did this show on, on radical black abolitionism. Uh, right. And, and you do say something very much like it. it's like against moral suasion. Um, and this is what Ariel's doing in some sense, right? He's, he's trying yeah. to persuade Prospero of the good way to be. And, yeah. and I don't, yeah. that's absolutely not happening. And it's absolutely not what's going to happen. And yeah. the best way for Caliban to get out of these chains is to probably kill the guy 
guy who's keeping him down. Exactly. Yeah, you'll really enjoy Césaire because here's an exchange between Ariel and Caliban, which of course doesn't happen in the original. They don't talk to each other. Hmm. But in Césaire's version, it's it's exactly that. It's explicitly, will moral suasion work or will we need to take up arms in violent self-defense and resistance? And then in the 21st century, not quite the same thing, but a similar thing happens with Sycorax, that you get a generation of particularly black women writers who see in Sycorax an emblem of the historic oppression and exploitation of, of black women. And, you know, both, both the exploitation, the centrality of black women's bodies to the imperial project but then also the suppression of black women's voices. You know, Sycorax doesn't have any lines, but her labor and reproduction are central to the action of the play. So a whole generation of writers um, kind of give, give Sycorax a voice. Sycorax has no real story, um, and she's roundly uh, denigrated. And uh, even though, as you say, Prospero has done exactly the same things that Sycorax might have been said to have done. Um, if Sycorax yes. uh, imprisons Ariel, uh, Prospero imprisons both Caliban and Ariel. Yes. Uh, so he actually one-ups Sycorax. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but we, as you say, we don't know her. We can't know her. We, we speculate. Even the name itself is, is enchanting in some sense, right? Yes, and, and hard to pin down. And there are different theories about where it comes from. Um, Scythian Raven is one of the hmm. theories. And again, Sycorax has such resonance for that project mm. of reclaiming a history and decolonizing a history. And, and I think part of that project for literary historians is decolonizing the artwork and also decolonizing the history of that artwork's reception. Mm. So at those moments when the, the violence and the barbarism of the system is erased, then we have to go and restore it as you think about Sycorax actually embodying that erasure, again, it's hard for me to read the play in anything but a, a negative way. I can't see it as a as a redemption story because because I don't I can't trust Prospero in the first place. Um, right. Everything about the play is his is about his vengeance and his anger, um, and understandably, I suppose if you're if you're Prospero. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but everything else, everything he does is so negative and, and harmful. And, you know, he speaks to his daughter, he calls her wench, which may be a, a normal term, I suppose. <laughs> but, and I don't know if it, I forgot to look it up to see if it was just kind of, everybody's like, yeah, we call every woman wench. And it's just, <laughs> it's just what we call women. It is widespread. Um, and, you know, maybe it doesn't, it's normalized. Right, that's, right. that's the point. But it doesn't change the fact that Prospero, objectifies his daughter and browbeats his daughter and sells his daughter off to um, for political marriage. And uh, the thing that I find stunning is that when you see performances, those scenes are played typically for laughs. Right. And it's very, very discomforting, especially if you think, well, imagine that that's actually a 15-year-old there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's saying he's he's giving her to Ferdinand. You know, take my possession, take my prized possession, but don't violate her virgin knot. Yeah, right. And it's played. You know, when it's played for laughs. Right. Wow. And it gets to that heart of the question about comedy under capitalism, doesn't it? That yeah. there's 
the comedy which is lodged against the powerful and comedy that's at the expense of the powerless. Goodly creatures are there here. How beauteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Well, one of the things I wanted to touch on quickly uh, is just, you know, how some of these phrases or these sort of famous lines from the play are absolutely always sort of used in the wrong way or with the wrong understanding because they're ripped out of the play and, and not 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 even understood that the uh, which character is maybe saying it. So the most famous one, obviously, from uh, used in, in Aldous Huxley's novel uh, Brave New World is actually Miranda speaking these these words as she witnesses you know the europeans arriving um <laughs> so it's the exact opposite of what i th- assume everybody thinks it means you know the europeans seeing the brave new world of of north america well exactly i think you're right that's the the, the most ironic entry into the common language of a line that changes its meaning so fundamentally because she is describing as you said, it's the old world, and it's not just the old world. They're the they're you know usurpers, would be murderers, drunkards. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly <laughs> not brave. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and she misidentifies that yeah, as. Uh, yeah. It was sad to me to you know to read her be as mean to Caliban as Prospero. Actually, when they're talking about how terrible he is. She says, a borrowed slave, which any print of goodness will not take, being capable of all ill. It's it's a very brutal speech. Oh, agreed, and yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it, historically, um, it used to be attributed to Prospero. This is kind of in the Victorian era when they didn't think that a woman could have said such things, mm-hmm. uh, that it would be, it, those, those lines would have been given to Prospero, which is interesting. I pitied thee, took pains to make thee speak, taught thee each hour one thing or other. When thou didst not, savage, know thine own meaning, but wouldst gabble like a thing most brutish, I endowed thy purposes with words that made them known. But thy vile race, though thou didst learn, had that into which good natures could not abide to be with. Therefore wast thou deservedly confined into this rock, who hadst deserved more than a prison. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Prospero's Roaring War, and our guest is Helen Scott, author of Shakespeare's Tempest and Capitalism, in which she explores the ramifications and figurative potential of the Tempest for global social and ecological crises today. The other thing I want to say is that those lines have also led to a whole critical discussion that kind of uses uh, the, the relationship uh, between Prospero, Miranda, and Caliban takes that relationship and uses it kind of allegorically for talking about the complicity of the colonial woman hmm. in, in racism, that she's sort of siding with um, the patriarch mm-hmm. against the enslaved. Do, you, do we have time to talk a little bit about the, the rape accusation too? 
Sure. So do you mean well, the, the sense that, uh, that Prospero says that uh, Caliban would have taken her, her honor, I think? Yeah. Yeah. This is the reason he's imprisoned or put in the rock or, you know, made to live in a cave. Exactly. Caliban says, you know, this island's mine that thou tookst from me. And Prospero says, one, that's not true. And two, you deserved it because you tried to violate my daughter. Mm-hmm. Caliban doesn't deny it. He says, I wish I had, I wish it had been successful. I have used thee, filth as thou art, with humane care and lodged thee in mine own cell till thou didst seek to violate the honour of my child. <laughs> what had been done? Thou didst prevent me. I had people else this isle with Caliban. He doesn't, strictly speaking, say he did. He doesn't say he didn't. Um, but that obviously is a very, very troubling moment. But one of the things that happens in the history of liberatory rewrites is that the accusation is seen to be false. So you have a series of Calibans who say, that's a lie. Um, and Miranda isn't the one who accuses him either, which is you know, an interesting detail. It's, it's Prospero's accusation. That's one thing that is done with that very problematic moment that seems to pit race against gender, that people have analysed it as a moment that has become implicated in the myth of the black rapist. When Caliban says what he says, it it struck me that it reminded me of uh, Frankenstein when... um the monster wants a partner and Frankenstein does not. He's, he fears them having children <laughs> that, that would take over the world because yeah. they're so uh, strong and better than everybody else. Like the monster is better than everybody else. And here it has a resonance too, right? The fear of being bettered by the person you've enslaved and been told were inferior. Right. Um, and by the way, there is a a historical relationship between Frankenstein and, and Caliban. Shelley loved The Tempest, and mm. he, the preface to Frankenstein refers to The Tempest, but also contemporaries linked Caliban and, and Frankenstein. They said, oh, he's a Frankenstein. Frankenstein is a Caliban-like figure. You know, the line where he says, you taught me you language. You taught me language, and my profitant is I know how to curse. Generally... I just assumed he's responding to Prospero, but in the play he's responding to Miranda, who's taught him how to mean. The words used in that particular uh, part are interesting because she's saying he couldn't mean without being able to speak the language. I don't know. Did Sycorax not speak? (laughs) Right. Right. You know, did he not have a language? Right. um, Yeah, this in the later liberatory rewrites, that becomes a central issue. Césaire just straight out has Caliban say, you know, what nonsense. I had a perfectly good language, you just didn't understand it. Mm. And that's in the post-colonial version, a a central trope is um, Miranda and Prospero misrecognize Caliban's language as being gabbling because they don't understand it. And then Uh, They teach Caliban their language and Caliban becomes a more effective speaker of their language than they are, (laughs) right? right? Because he has the best lines in the play. Uh, The poet Derek Walcott um, used to talk about that quite a lot. He Hmm. said Caliban is, is the archetypal figure of the Caribbean poet who resents the fact that he was given the language of the colonizer, but he has made that language his own and is now a poet and that that language then becomes his own again. 
There's a lot to talk about still, I know, but I do want to talk about what is probably uh, as important to talk about today in, in the fact that we are in another kind of storm uh, of history with the current situation with the coronavirus now seeming to be spreading in a way that, that is obviously very troubling. So how, how is it that you know, we can perhaps make use of this moment or be able to read The Tempest as you know, helping us understand this moment? One of the things that I do in my book that we haven't talked about is I lean heavily on on Walter Benjamin, mm. um, who was the German Jewish Marxist who died in 1940. Actually, took his own, took his own life, but you know he would have met a worse fate because he was about to be captured by the Nazis. And he wrote a series of fragments, really essays, on the concept of history just before he died. And in Thesis Seven, which is the most famous, he says. There is no document of culture, which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. That's at the center of my book in that the Tempest is a document of, of barbarism. You can't take that out of the play. It's not only that. It's a work of art, which also brings inspiration and hope and, and, and many other things. But it does capture the, the barbarism, which was in that moment at the beginnings of capitalism. And it has been in capitalism ever since and is now you know, laid bare for us to see. So I would come at it that way. You know, how does art, the art that we inherit, offer insight into, you know, what sustains this system? And more explicitly right now, this notion of capitalism being, you know, the sorcerer who whose powers are out of control and now threaten to destroy the earth itself, and its people, yea, all which it inherit, is crystal clear. Do not be afeard. The isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that if I then had waked after long sleep would make me sleep again. And then in dreaming the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me. That when I waked, I cried to dream again. That was Richard Burton as Caliban in the 1960 Hallmark Hall of Fame television production of The Tempest. Yes, you heard that right. And with a nod to the disintegrative or leftist reading of Caliban, we'll close with Haitian fight song from bassist and composer the great Charles Mingus. Thanks to Helen Scott for such wonderful insights into the many ways The Tempest reveals us to ourselves. And thanks to Tony McKenna, who prompted me along the way. And thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Executive producer is Kate Young. You're listening to WFHB, Bloomington's community radio station.